This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. So this talk is about faith, reason, and the use of philosophical concepts in theology. There are two main parts. First, I'm going to lay out some basic thoughts on faith and reason and how we can understand them in such a way that they don't conflict. Second, I'm going to discuss how philosophical ideas get used in theology. The connection between those two main parts of the talk looks something like this. Philosophy makes use of reason alone, while theology makes use of both faith and reason. That makes it seem as if theology takes things from philosophy and then adds some extra things. Now that's not wrong, but it's an oversimplification, or at least that's what I'm gonna propose. I'm going to say that it's an oversimplification in the sense that theology doesn't just use things from philosophy, it sometimes adapts them or modifies them for theological purposes. And yet it does so without undercutting or destroying what philosophy says. And some of these points that I'll be making are more or less explicitly there in Aquinas, and some of them are things he doesn't exactly say, but you can, I think it's in the same spirit. So let's start by just clarifying the basic ideas of faith and reason. We'll start with reason. For our purposes, we can take reason to be the natural human ability to think about reality. This thinking ability involves what are sometimes called the three acts of the mind or operations of the mind. The first is grasping a concept as when you understand what a triangle is or what bronze is. So a triangle is a three-sided closed plane figure. Bronze is an alloy of copper and tin. When you get that, you're doing one of those conceptualizing acts of the mind. The second act or operation is making a judgment. Not, you know, in the sense of being judgy, but in the sense of putting two concepts together. As when you say that bronze is harder than copper, or that a triangle has interior angles that add up to 180 degrees. So you're putting concepts together. The third act of the mind is argumentation, not in the sense of ruining Thanksgiving dinner by shouting at other people about politics, but uh, in the sense of putting together multiple judgments to lead to a new judgment. So to use the world's most cliched philosophical example, you know what I'm gonna say, all men are mortal, Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is mortal. Okay, so that's an argument. Now, that, all of that is reason. There's a long and complicated story to tell about the underpinnings of human reason in sensation and imagination. There's also a long and complicated story to tell about the role of human reason in human action. We can't do everything today but what we've got, I think, is good enough for the moment. So let's move on to talk about faith. Faith is believing what God reveals because God reveals it. It's an enhancement of our reason. It takes us beyond what our reasoning powers can accomplish by allowing us to have true beliefs about important things that we might not otherwise have a chance to learn about. For example, through faith, we know that Christ is divine. This is not something we would ever have figured out by, like, reading Aristotle. We know it because God has revealed it, and we take it on God's authority. Without faith, we wouldn't, so to speak, be as smart as we need to be, at least in a certain domain. Now, it's reasonable to ask, what domain is that? What is that domain that faith gives us a leg up on in. I don't know how to finish that sentence. There's this domain, and faith gives us a leg up in that domain. What domain is that? Good question. Okay. I want to come to that, but I'm going to go on a little sidetrack first and contrast faith with hope. Sometimes when you ask people what faith is, they say something like this. Faith is trusting in God to take care of you. But actually, that's not what faith is. 
That's what hope is. The catechism of the Catholic Church, a good place to get snappy definitions. Hope is the theological virtue by which we desire the kingdom of heaven and eternal life as our happiness, placing our trust in Christ's promises and relying not on our own strength, but on the help of the grace of the Holy Spirit. So hope is something that belongs to our powers of willing. Faith, by contrast, belongs to our powers not of willing, but of reasoning. So the, the catechism, again, faith is the theological virtue by which we believe in God and believe all that he has said and revealed to us and that Holy Church proposes for our belief because he is truth itself. Okay, so people all often mix those up, and it's like a pet peeve of mine, so I just thought I would mention that. Okay, back to our topic, faith and reason and their respective domains. You might think that faith and reason are responsible for different areas of reality. The things over here are the ones that we accept on the basis of reason. The things over there are the ones that we accept on the basis of faith. And that's not entirely wrong. There are a lot of things we know about on the basis of reason and not on the basis of faith. For example, the chemical composition of water or the distance from Ithaca to Rochester or how many prime numbers there are. And there are things that we know about on the basis of faith and not on the basis of human reason. For example, that there are three persons in one God or that Jesus is divine or that we need grace for salvation. However, Things are not so simple as this suggests because there are things that are knowable by reason that are nevertheless revealed by God. In other words, the realm of things that we know by reason overlaps with the realm of things that we can know by faith. For example, we know by revelation that God is good and that God has created the world. These things, to repeat, are things that we can know by human reason alone, but nonetheless, God has revealed them. Now, why would God do such a thing? If he's already given us the ability to figure them out on our own, why would he then just go and tell us? There are two sides to the answer. First, some things are so important that if we don't know them, our salvation is in danger. With all due respect to the mathematicians in the room, your salvation won't be in danger if you don't know how many prime numbers there are. But if you don't know about God and what you need to do to achieve friendship with God, your whole life could turn into a catastrophe. Second, at least some of these things that we need to know for salvation are extremely difficult to figure out. Not everyone is smart enough. Even if you are smart enough, you might not have time to spend on such topics. And finally, even if you are smart enough and have enough free time, there's still a good chance that you'll make some serious errors. So the stakes are high. Human salvation depends on this knowledge. And the chances of getting it high are wrong. God doesn't want us to be at such great risk. So he tells us what we need to know through scripture and the teachings of the church, even in those cases where in theory we could have figured it out on our own. So as some of you are probably recognizing, this is just exactly what Aquinas says for why we need something more than philosophy. So one last comment about faith and reason, and then we can move on to philosophy and theology. Faith goes beyond reason, but does not contradict it. Things known only by faith exceed reason in two ways. First, reason can't prove them. Second, reason can't fully understand their content. Reason can understand them to some extent, but it can't understand them fully. It can't comprehend them. Of course, this doesn't mean that they are incomprehensible. God comprehends them, but they're incomprehensible to us. Understandable to some extent, but not comprehensible in the sense of fully understanding. Even though some of the things that are accepted in faith cannot be proven or comprehended by reason, this doesn't mean there can be a contradiction between faith and reason. Aquinas gives the following argument. Both faith and reason come from God. 
So they can't come into conflict. Why would he conflict himself? Now, you might ask, what if there appears to be a conflict? And the first thing to be said here, that certainly happens. Sometimes it really does look like there's a conflict. So in a case like this, it looks like one of three things needs to be true. So either we're confused about what the faith says, or we're confused about what reason says. Or these things aren't in conflict at all, even, even the things that we're looking at. So um, an apparent conflict might last a long time, at least for some people. It might take you a long time even to figure out where the problem is. But you should feel confident that there is a conflict, there, there is a problem in there somewhere. So true reason cannot contradict true faith. So if it looks like there's a contradiction, either the two things don't contradict or one of them isn't the true faith or one of them isn't true reason. Okay, so much for faith and reason. Now I want to shift gears and talk about philosophy and theology. And the first question is simply, what are they? Philosophy is the use of natural reason to ask and answer foundational questions. When I say that it's the use of natural reason, I mean that philosophy does not rely on supernatural revelation. It doesn't rely on God revealing things to us. Philosophy has to content itself with what can be learned by natural human thinking powers alone. When I say that philosophy asks and answers fundamental questions, I mean that it asks questions that concern what is most basic or foundational. It's probably best to explain this by means of an example. Suppose I'm on top of some big rock, and you ask me, how did you get up there? And I want to tell you that I got up there by jumping. But I'm not sure which is the correct verb form to use, so I say, should I say that I jumped onto the rock or should I say that I jump onto the rock? Now, if you're a native English speaker, this question probably sounds foolish, but of course, it's not a foolish question. Um, certainly, if for someone who's learning English as a second language, it's a very good question. Um, we don't say that we swimmed across the lake. We say that we swam across the lake. So we might talk about that for a while. And then at a certain point, I might have a more basic question. I might say, why is it that in English, some verbs form their past tense by adding ed, jump, jumped, while others change the vowel, swim, swam? Then I might ask an even more basic question, just what makes verbs special as distinct from other words? In elementary school, they tell you that a verb is an action word, but is is a verb. And it's hard to see how the wagon is red describes an action, right? So there's got to be a better answer to this question. So we might talk about that for a while. And then somebody will ask, why are some sounds words while others are not? They're just grunts or other kinds of noises. Now, if actual people had a conversation like this in real life that wandered from, is it jump or is it jamp, all the way to, why are some sounds words while others are not? At some point, somebody might say, whoa, we're getting pretty philosophical here. Uh, and they would be right. So over the course of such a progression, the questions have indeed been getting more philosophical because they've been getting more and more basic. They've been asking about things that are closer and closer to the basis or foundation of the nature of language in this case. Probably there's no sharp dividing line between questions that are philosophical and questions that are not. As we just saw, questions that are linguistic can lead to questions in the philosophy of language. Or to take another example, ordinary questions in history, how old is this document, can lead to deeper questions. For example, what is the correct way to decide how old a document is? And eventually to very basic questions about the nature of historical processes and our knowledge of them. In short, questions in history can lead to questions in the philosophy of history. And likewise for chemistry, 
literature, sociology, medicine, and so on. Philosophical questions lie at the roots of every discipline. And there are extra deep questions that lie at the roots of multiple disciplines. For example, questions about human nature are foundational for history, economics, and many other fields. All of this, by the way, is why understanding philosophy is important for everyone, no matter what they study. Answers to philosophical questions are presupposed by every field of study. If you study some philosophy in addition to your primary field, you will be aware of the questions at the basis of your primary field, and you will be aware of how others are answering them. If you don't study philosophy, you will be less aware of the questions at the basis of your field, and you will be less aware of how others are answering them. But the questions and the answers will still be there, steering the discussion in ways that you won't understand. You'll be at the mercy of intellectual forces that are beyond your range of vision. Philosophy is not another part of the turf, a part that philosophers are defending in an academic turf battle. Instead, philosophy is the earth that lies under the turf, and not under part of it, but under all of it. And yet, of course, philosophy is not enough. Without philosophy, there's nowhere for the grass to grow. But if philosophy is all we have, the result is not a lawn, but just a muddy field. The fact that philosophy is the asking and answering of fundamental questions helps, by the way, to show why philosophy is so difficult and why it is so hard to make progress and find definitive solutions. If you are trying to solve a problem in engineering, you can dig down one level to physics or chemistry or whatever to look for insight. But when you get to the bottommost level, there's no way to dig deeper. There are no more basic principles to rely on. Think of trying to renovate a shed. You can climb down from the shed, walk around it, and climb back up when you need to. And if need be, you can more or less entirely take it apart. Now compare that with trying to renovate a ship at sea. You can't leave the ship, and even more so, you can't take it apart. So you have to rebuild it while sailing, and that's hard. All right, if that's philosophy, then what's theology? Theology, as they say, is faith seeking understanding. Theology is something done by believers, by people who have accepted divine revelation, people with faith in that sense. Theologians start from belief or faith, but they go forward and try to understand further. Cardinal Newman's image here was Mary. When Jesus was a child, Mary observed certain things about him, and then she treasured them in her heart, as Scripture says. Later, at the wedding at Cana, she was able to step forward and say something about Jesus that had not been told to her. So right away, we can see that the contrast between theology and philosophy isn't the contrast between faith and reason. Philosophy doesn't use faith, that's true, but theology does use reason. Maybe some people who call themselves theologians don't, but so much the worse for them and their students. Theologians ought to be every bit as intelligent and rational as philosophers, if not more so. If experience suggests otherwise to you, that would have to be because of some unnatural sociological fact about academia in our time, and not because of anything intrinsically non-rational about theology. Now, so far I have said that theologians use reason in general, but to put it like that isn't to say anything about philosophy in particular. And in truth, theologians don't use only philosophy. They use linguistic sciences, they use history, they use literary techniques, they might even use social sciences. But mostly and most deeply, they use philosophy, or any way they should. For a few decades there, back in the later parts of the 20th century, I think a lot of theologians started to think that maybe philosophy wasn't really all that special. Psychology and sociology and anthropology might be better uh, suited for assisting theology. That didn't work out too well. 
I don't mean that those fields are never of use for theology. Certainly they are of use. But philosophy is special and indispensable. It has to be just because of what it is, investigation of foundational truths. And I must say, if you'll forgive me, that in my experience, when you find a bad theologian, there's almost always a bad philosopher underneath. Okay, now I want to turn to the last part of this talk. I want to talk about how theology uses philosophical concepts. And the basic claim I will make is this. The things the theology needs to say are sometimes the same as the things that philosophy needs to say. And sometimes they're similar, but also a bit different. When things are the same, theologians can use philosophical concepts without adapting them. But when things are similar, but also a bit different, theologians need to adapt philosophical concepts to theological purposes. The best way to explain this, I think, is to work through an example from Thomas Aquinas' Christology, so his theological understanding of Christ. In the Bible, Christ is presented as sometimes doing standard human things, such as eating, walking, and dying. Sometimes, however, he is presented as doing things that only God can do. Indeed, he is sometimes discussed as if he were God. This is a confusing situation. One way of interpreting what is there in the Bible is to say that Christ is a human being who is very, very holy, so holy that at times people treat him and speak of him as if he were divine. But really, on this way of thinking, it's just that God dwells in him very strongly. He's that holy. Another way of interpreting the biblical data is to say that Christ is God in person, but not really human. He's God, appearing in some sort of human costume or disguise. Still another way of interpreting the biblical data is to say that Christ is actually two different people, a human, Jesus, and a divine person, the second person of the Trinity, the Son, of course, you would say, those two persons, they do work together very closely. There's a long story behind these and other competing interpretations of the Bible, all of them deba debated quite ferociously in the earliest centuries of the church. Now, the ones, the ones that I mentioned are all very interesting, but unfortunately, they're all heresies. As the church finally clarified in a series of councils, Christ is one person who is both human and divine. He's one person with two natures. What does this mean? Let's start with person. A person is a rational substance. Okay, what's a substance? A substance is an independent, unified entity. Like, let's take a cat, Rusty. So Rusty, this cat, he's unified in the sense that he's one thing, not a pair of things, like a pair of shoes, or any other group of things, like a football team or a pile of sand. He's one thing. He's independent in the sense that he exists on his own and not as a feature or aspect of anything else. Rusty's sitting posture and his leaping motion are not substances because they exist only in him as features or aspects or properties of him. They're not independent. Rusty himself, by contrast, exists on his own, not as a feature of anything else. So Rusty is a unified, independent entity, a substance. But Rusty is not rational. He doesn't have the power of reason. So although he's a substance, he's not a rational substance. He's not a person. You and I are persons. We're substances, and we're rational. Okay, so if that's person, what about nature? Think of Rusty again. He's red, he's agile, he's furry. But what is he in the most basic and foundational sense? What kind of thing is he? He's a cat, of course. That's his essence or nature. A nature is what something is, at its most foundational level. 
These concepts, person and nature, are in one way actually just sort of common sense ideas that ordinary people already understand. In another way, they are concepts that philosophers can and have developed in great detail, especially in their very developed forms. They can be of serious use to theologians. In fact, Pope Benedict once made the amazing suggestion that the reason that the incarnation happened when it did in the course of history was, so to speak, that God was waiting until philosophy had evolved enough that people would understand the incarnation when it happened. That's an amazing claim, but I mean, I'm just telling, I'm just reporting. Okay, so you can see fairly easily how these concepts can be used in Christology. Christ is one thing. So Christ is one person. He's one thing, one independent thing, one single independent thing of a rational nature, of course. At the same time, he's not only divine or only human. He has two essences or two natures. He's unique in that way. No other entity has two natures. With these philosophical tools at our disposal, we can make sense of the fact that the Bible appears to present him as sometimes having divine qualities and sometimes having human qualities. It's really the same him all the time. He's one person. But sometimes we are noticing the qualities he has due to his divine nature, while other times we are noticing the qualities he has due to his human nature. And sometimes we even see them working together. Aquinas' example is the way Christ touches a leper and heals him. The touching he does by means of his human nature and the healing by his divine power. So far, I have tried to make clear how these basic philosophical concepts can be used in theology without any need for adaptation. But now I want to discuss how, when you dig a little further into Christology, the need for adaptation can arise. So let's think about the relationship between nature on the one hand and substance or person on the other. Rusty is a substance, and he's a substance of a certain kind. Namely, he's a cat. But, as already noted, he has features other than catness. What makes his nature, his felinity, so special? As we noted already, felinity is what he is at the most fundamental level. Before he's anything else, he's a cat. Apart from being a cat, he just wouldn't be anything at all. His coming to be and his coming to be a cat were just the same. And his being a cat goes hand in hand with his being, being there at all. So while his cat nature makes him be feline, it also makes him simply be. That's different from his agility or his redness. These make him be in this way or that way, but they don't make him simply be. This applies to human nature just as much as it applies to cat nature. Socrates is human, and his humanity is not just another fact about him. It's the, the primordial fact about him, the fact in virtue of which he simply exists as a substance, as a rational substance, a person. If this is true about human nature in Socrates, it should be true about human nature in Christ. Or maybe we're moving too fast. Christ is a person, a divine person. He has been a divine person from all eternity, but then he became human. He took on or assumed a human nature. Now, as we just saw, a human nature makes something to be a person. But in Christ's case, that does not seem like the right thing to say. It does not seem right to say that Christ's human nature makes him a person. So we seem to be facing some sort of dilemma. On the one hand, if Christ's human nature makes him be a person, then there are two persons in Christ. The divine one, who has existed from all eternity, and the human one that came into existence together with the divine, with the human nature. On the other hand, 
If Christ's human nature doesn't make him to be a person, then it would seem that there's something wrong with it. It does less than what Socrates' human nature does. And that might suggest that Christ is not really human after all. Okay, above I said that when reason and faith seem to be in conflict, something has to be wrong somewhere. This is one of those cases, but how to resolve it? So following Aquinas, we could say something like the following. Our philosophical notion of a nature is something, our philosophical notion of nature is something that makes you be the fundamental kind of thing you are and also that makes you exist as a substance or a person in the first place. If we just accept this notion without adaptation, things are going to go wrong in Christology. This is the off-the-rack notion of nature, and it doesn't fit. We need something tailor-made for theology. So let us say that a nature is not something that must make you exist as a substance or a person, but something that can make you exist as a substance or a person. It can, and normally it will. But if some special circumstance arises that prevents it from happening, then it won't. That's what goes on in the Incarnation. Christ already exists as a person from all eternity. So when his human nature comes on the scene, it's too late for that nature to give rise to a person. But it's still a real human nature because it's still the kind of thing that can make something be a person. If Christ's human nature had not been assumed by God, but instead had just entered the world in the usual way, then it would have made a new human um, person exist. So what theology does here is to take an important concept from philosophy, nature, and adapt it for theological purposes. And interestingly, at least in this case, the adapted version is just as usable in philosophy as the original version was. We don't actually have to insist that Socrates' human nature is the sort of thing that must give rise to a human person. We can say, if we want, that Socrates' human nature is the sort of thing that can give rise to a human person, and that it will do so if it is not joined to or assumed by a pre-existing person. In Socrates' case, obviously, it is not joined to any pre-existing person. So it does give rise to a human person, to Socrates. So we don't need to say that theology has its own special theology-only version of the notion of nature. The version that theology comes up with can be used in philosophy, too. Admittedly, it would be rather ridiculous to always go around saying that Rusty has a, a nature that is the sort of thing that can give rise to a cat. We all know that cat natures don't get assumed by God, well, at least outside of the Narnia books. So for all philosophical purposes, it's easier, and just as correct, to use the slightly narrower philosophical version. But even so, it's good to know that the theological notion is use, usable in philosophy. That takes away some of the worry that you might have had, the worry that theology solves its problems by bending or breaking the rules. What theology does, at least in this case, is to notice a possibility that philosophy never thought of. But once theology notices this possibility, philosophy can notice it too. One last remark before finishing this section. Perhaps you notice that instead of saying that the special theological versions of philosophical ideas can always be used in philosophy, I have said only that this is possible in this case. That's because I'm just not sure that it will always work out like this. Maybe it will. I can think of one other case, one where Aquinas makes this same sort of move quite a bit more explicitly than he makes it in the case of Christology. It's his famous discussion of the accidents in the Eucharist where he says more or less that instead of holding that accidents are the sort of thing that must belong to a substance, like the appearances of the bread, the round and the white and all, that's the accidents I mean. We should say that accidents are the sort of thing for which belonging to a substance is normal, but not absolutely obligatory. 
That can be applied outside of theology too, although again, it would be weird to proceed in that way perhaps. But will theological concepts always translate back into philosophy? Or are they sometimes useful only in the theology zone? I'm not sure. I haven't put enough thought into it yet. So in conclusion, I have tried to explain the basic notions of reason and faith. And I've tried to indicate how they give rise to two important intellectual endeavors. Philosophy, which uses reason alone, and theology, which uses faith and reason both. I have claimed that faith and reason do not conflict with one another, but I've also tried to show that this, this doesn't always work in the obvious way. The obvious way is for theology to just take something from philosophy and use it. But sometimes I have suggested theology can take something from philosophy and adapt it, and even give it back to philosophy in a new and improved version. Thank you. So now we have some time for questions. Um, so if you have a question, feel free to just raise your hand. And Louise or I will call on you. Uh, please say your question. And because we're not using the microphones, we'll repeat the question so everyone can hear it. And then we'll ask Dr. Harmon to respond to it. Yes. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Harmon. Great um, good talk to it. Um, I just wanted to pick up on the suggestion of the adaption of these philosophical yeah. concepts. Um, and maybe approach it in a slightly different way. So, and using the background, Robert Slavkowski, the Christian distinction yeah. as a framework. So, in the last like 30 or 40 years, it's also become a more common claim, and this is kind of the claim you finished with, that theology or revelation, more specifically revelation, bequeaths something to philosophy yeah. that understands this concept, this reasoning much better. Um, and yet, it seems to me that it was the latter of your two suggestions that it's the whole holy uniqueness of the two natures of one person that is the, the soul, so to speak, example. And it seems like we can do that against the background of the Christian distinction. In other words, that you know, a God who would not have been lessened and all of that yeah. had the world never existed. Um, so against that background that the natural philosophical concepts still have their integrity. In other words, they don't have to be necessarily. In other words, it shouldn't bother us yes. so much about the possibility of applying that to a cat or something like that. So yeah. it's, it's just a general observation, kind of a question what you might think about that. Because I, I, the Sokolowski's claims of, in the last like, 20 years, they, you know, they've been under more scrutiny. Right. People think that way. Um, he might not be giving enough emphasis to philosophy as the source of the preamble of humanity. In other words, the yes. philosophy, the whole horizon opens up because of Christian revelation. And this is kind of a claim that runs through Peter Zorazzi and John Paul II, too, so it seems to be you know, somewhat um, unique to phenomenology. Yeah. So anyway, any comments? Okay, so the very, okay, so the, sorry. I think it'll be easier for you. Yeah, yeah, so, so okay, so I, I take, so, let me try to phrase this in a somewhat different way. There's a, a risk of going wrong if we allow theology to offer things to philosophy, because then that sort of disrupts the natural integrity of philosophy uh, and its own ability to grasp the natures of created things. So that, that's the basic gist of that, right? The thing that you said at the end, I didn't totally follow. Um, can't even remember what exactly it was. The thing that you linked in with Fides et Ratio, but you said it right before. Well, the, the more general idea that philosophy is generally enriched by Christian revelation in a way yes. that still retains the integrity of philosophy, but expands yes. its horizon. Yes. And the reason I mentioned that is because it seems to me somewhat interesting, akin to Sokolowski's project of, you know, the Christian distinction in the way that, um, Oh, to, to put it right down to it, the early councils, right. right, were not just simply examples of taking that philosophy had developed to such a point that okay, now we have all the tools to actually understand right. the hypostatic union. It was that it was in the, the horizon of revelation, yes, that we were able to then use yes. those concepts in, in a uh, in a, a wholly unique way, yes, 
And I'm not saying how the answer to this, but no, no, it's okay. it still has a way of respecting these. Yes, right? yes, this okay. Paul makes both those claims. Yeah, no, it's just, and, and I mean, and I think this is part of the point of what you're saying, right? These two remarks that you're making, in a sense, I mean, I don't want to say they're in exactly in conflict with one another, but they push in slightly different directions, right? Because the first one kind of says, hold on, philosophy can fend for itself. And you don't want to dissolve philosophy just into theology. But the second one says, yeah, but maybe historically we can see that philosophy has been enriched by what happens in theology. No, I think that's right. I want to think about that more. Um, I was making my proposal in the sort of more immediate context of this worry that you just end up with, in a sense, two meanings for the word nature. It just becomes a kind of equivocal or disjunctive term. And that there's something, something bogus about that, where the theologian goes, okay, wait, let me just, in, when my problems arise, I just change the meanings of words and make my problems go away. And so I thought well, um, one way to see that that's not what's happening is to say, what would happen if we took the theologian's, ver theologian's version and put it back into philosophy? And nothing would go wrong, actually. Now, I think, see, I think it's part of, yeah, this is, I mean, it's part of the integrity of philosophy that what it primarily thinks about is created reality. And it can get a glimpse of the creator that's the source of created reality. And it can, I mean, a pretty good glimpse, but that's sort of like right on the edge of what it can do. And so I think it would, it's sort of to be expected that philosophy in its kind of natural state wouldn't come up with this uh, alternative understanding of nature. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you're making me nervous. This is good, right? But I feel like um, to say that here's something that philosophy might have seen and didn't isn't really to call its integrity into question. It's just to bring out the way in which it is, after all, only philosophy. As wonderful it is as it is, it's still only a the product of natural human reason. So we couldn't have expected to see this. Yeah, finish, but the, the, I mean, so philosophy's claim is that I mean, it's actually um, the two natures in one person is absolutely impossible to think of on, on a purely philosophical level. It had to have been revelation that revealed, yeah. that, revealed that possibility. And yeah. If we look at it that way, that that's for me what helps to to retain the integrity. Of philosophy, let's say, as, as a discipline. Because, like, the philosopher is not going to go, oh, die, how could I have missed that? Yeah, exactly. Right, 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 right. right. And also, I, and, and this is what I have to think further, really doesn't have to worry about the adapted idea of nature. In other words, because, no. because in, the, in the natural realm, it is going to make the, the human nature, and this is where I'm kind of maybe challenging the thing, it, 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 it must make Socrates or anything else, if that nature is had in that realm, it does have to make that, that thing to be what it is. Yeah, I mean, if, if it's not assumed to a pre-existing person, it can't help but do that. I see, okay. Yeah, I think that, no, I agree with that. Okay. Um, I, it's just, I mean, I, I'm, 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 I'm making this point simply to uh, help to equip the theologian of the charge that he's just changing the rules for his special mm -hmm. situation. Um, but I'm not trying to propose that. Yeah, and I see how the very last sentence of my talk kind of suggests this, maybe more than I should. It's not like it's not like philosophers should now go, oh, let's change all the metaphysics books, right? That would be, in fact, that would be crazy. It's, it's, it's in a way, I'm, I just want to ask kind of the same question, but maybe not. Is Plato correct in his statement that Socrates was a theologian? Plato appeals to this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is he, is he... Okay, so in the, in, the, in the sense in which I'm using it here, Plato's not a theologian because he's not um, working on the basis of, of divinely infused faith. Now, if you want to say, well, maybe he actually is, like we could have that conversation. But I mean, at face value, he's not, right? He's a pagan. Well, you know, but also he believes, he believes in... The religion that, it, that he has the Yes, yes. Okay, so that's, yeah. Church might actually be a Well, he certainly is dealing with, I mean, okay, so there's all these arguments about the way to interpret Plato. I don't want to get into that. And like, you know, to the Straussians in the room, 
I'm just not getting into all that right now. But, but like, I mean, I know that's like a thing, okay? But like taking it, I'm just starting from your, your standpoint. That's, that, okay, that's right. So there are these sets of religious beliefs that Plato was, is allowing to guide his philosophical reflections. So I would say that is analogous to what, um, let's say, a Christian theologian is doing. But it's not the same um, because there's a sort of way, the, the, the kind of, in a, they're, they're similar in the way that like, there's this non-philosophical belief about religious things that you allow into your, your thinking. That's right. But the difference is that if you're St. Paul, you actually are receiving actual legitimate divine revelation from the actual real God. Whereas if you're Plato and you're reflecting on myths from Homer and stuff, I mean, I'm sure that's giving you a lot of good ideas, but that's not actually revelation. Now, of course, that's like a super contested and contestable claim, right? I'm not saying like, like everyone in the world will go, well, duh, obviously, right? I mean, on the, on the contrary, but I think that, that uh, you know, I'm I'm, I'm, there's a certain way of understanding theology, and I'm using it in that way here, where who's got the real theology really does depend on who's right about what revelation is. So in that sense, it's like contested. But you're right. There's something analogous to it. So even if Plato's wrong and the Greek gods don't exist in any way and stuff like that, still, he's got something analogous going on. That's, I think that's right. Does that help, or am I just like failing to get the point? I'm wondering, uh, Peter makes the distinction between the philosopher Makes, makes use of theological facts and the theologian who reasons from them. I, Wait, say that again? He makes the paper makes the distinction between the philosopher who acknowledges and makes use of what he calls theological facts and the theologian who pushes his reasoning further in a kind of scientific way from those as Okay. I don't know whether the distinction is bogus or not. I don't I don't get it. I'd have to know more about what's meant by by the first half of that, yeah. right? Acknowledging and making. I see. Okay. Oh, that's that's super interesting. Where does he say this? Do you remember offhand? Uh, it's okay if you don't. That's a book on, on Plato's myths. Okay. Sure. Yeah. Um, that's really interesting. I don't know what to say because, um, again, like I would want to say that's analogous, right? Plato dealing with, with Homeric myths is analogous to Aquinas dealing with the scripture, but only analogous. There's also a disanalogy that I kind of want to, I think you have to sort of insist on. So the first question is, people have faith and they follow particular religions, but as we academics study the structure of religion, is there a need to find reason and rationality in how the faith and different religions are structured? I have two arguments for that. First is if at all religions are God's revelations, then they do not at all in any case need rationalization from us humans and academicians. And if they are in any case not God's revelations, then any attempt in finding reason in that religious structure would be futile or would not lead to truth. So my question is, is there I found any need of finding reason in faith. Why can't we study it objectively as faith as it is in the way it is? Okay. So the first question I yeah, we can come back. Say yeah, is that okay? Otherwise, I'll forget. <laughs> okay, so it's just, I mean, so you phrase it as a dilemma. If it's a real revelation, you don't need to bring philosophy in and kind of subject it to scrutiny because it's already has everything that it needs. And if it's not a real revelation, why are you even wasting your time thinking about it? I mean, someone would still be interested in studying it as a... Well, okay, that's true. That's true. Yeah. But then right. we don't need to find rationality in that art. Yes, good, good. No, that's a very good distinction. Okay, yeah. Okay, so so let's just... I want to focus more on the, the first half of that, right? So assume that it's a real revelation, whichever one that is. Of course, people don't agree on which is the real revelation. But assume it is the real revelation. There's one way of bringing reason to bear on it that does um, sort of undercut 
the idea that it's really revelation. That's where you philosophy comes in and says, oh yeah, prove yourself to me, right? When philosophy sits up as a judge over revelation. And that, I mean, you can talk about doing that, but then you aren't taking it as revelation anymore, okay? But there's a different way in which you can use reason. You can, you can um, take the content of revelation and then try to ask, what does this really mean? And what does, and then once I have some sense of what it means, what does it imply about other things? So let me give a very simple example, which is not perfectly uncontroversial, but it's, there's probably nothing that's perfectly uncontroversial. But in the scripture, it talks about God's arm, God's holy arm. Now you can say, wow, God has an arm. Like, I mean, you know, Aristotle never says anything about that. Aristotle makes it seem like God is like a sort of immaterial spirit, but I guess that's wrong. God has arms, right? I guess he's got an armpit too. But actually, though, if you think about it, if you, you can use reason to realize that can't possibly be what scripture means. So it, it must be a metaphorical way of talking about God's power, for example, or his rule, his governance, or something like that. So in one way of using... So that's the other way of using reason, where you, you try to figure out what Revelation is actually saying and, and um, to enrich your understanding of it. But that's still a kind of reason that accepts the Revelation as Revelation. So I would, I would answer that by making that distinction. Yes, and uh, you also said that the nature of Socrates is human. Yeah. And that makes Socrates inhuman. Yeah. However, a person X as a nature human, but that nature may or may not lead to a result of that person being a human or a not, or a not being. So my question is, how can something that hasn't existed yet already have a nature? And if oh. something has already existed and it has a nature, then how can it, how can its effect be contested? Whether it's yeah, excellent. Okay, so. We'd have to go through the whole thing. I'm just looking at the clock and I'm feeling, um, but you're, no, you're raising a good point. It's not like Socrates' nature is there. And then it says, okay, now I think I'm going to bring Socrates into existence. Boom, now I did it. Right? That's a confused way of thinking about it. We tend to talk like that. It's very hard to avoid it. The idea is more that for Socrates to come into existence and for him to come into existence as a human being are just inextricably linked. So what I'm trying to push back against, and this is a thing that some philosophers might say, is that you have something that exists already, and then it becomes human. Um, but I think that that is not, if that's, that, that's not how, um, that is, that if you think that, then you think that, hum, that being human is not really Socrates' nature. Because the nature is what you are at the most basic level. But um, it is, uh, um, uh, misleading to think about it as if the nature is like waiting and getting ready and saying, okay, now I'm going to do it. So yeah, I probably did say something that sounded like that. And I'm glad you, it's very hard to avoid. Um, so the best thing in a way is just to do it and then it comes up and then you can talk about it. Yeah. All right. So we have about reached our hour. Um, so let's wrap up and thank our speaker first.